require personalized programming, we have our team of Red Pill coaches available to help you with your performance needs, regardless of your competitive level. Please get in touch at redpilltraining.com. We are live for another Red Pill podcast. Not live. It needs to be live, doesn't it, mate? Well, it's live. Yeah, it's not broadcasted live. It's recorded live. It's recorded live. Yep. And uh, edited. It's an exciting one. It's a big one. Uh, we're doing football. Talking real sport. I'll, I'll let you hang yourself on that one, my friend. Um, we'll see how that goes, mate. Yeah, we'll see how your uh, CrossFit athletes feel about that. Oh, that's true, yeah. Yeah. But uh, you, you talk to them about it in the morning. Talk about rugby versus uh, football, mate. Oh, rugby. Oh, okay, good. But I'll let you dig your, your own hole here, bud. Yeah, mate. So, um, we're talking football, whilst um, the greatest football team ever to uh, grace the earth are playing in the Champions League, one up against Dortmund. He scores when he wants, and he scored again tonight, the boy Harry Kane. Won't be the last time I mention him on a football podcast. Um, but we've got two very special guests with us tonight. Who we got, Jouse? We've got William Whitney. Hello. And Mr. Shane Murphy. Hello. Two guys who uh, we've been fortunate enough to work with now for the best part of 18 months, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, we've had a lot of good conversations together and, uh, and had sort of a lot of good coffees and shared a lot of sort of our knowledge across sports together and we thought it'd be really cool to get you guys in on the podcast and just talk a little bit of football uh, I know Jaws and I have prepared a good few questions for you um, I think just to start with and genuinely genuinely start with you Will just just what you, you're, you're, just tell us a little bit about your role what you do what you do for, as a daily job the type of athletes you're working with and, and, and what you're doing okay uh, yeah so currently working at uh, Manchester City uh, working with the what we call the professional development phase so it's the under 23s and the under 18s uh, my role is to do the rehab um, across across that phase uh, so day to day essentially it's, um, it's, it's first and foremost is managing the schedules of the players uh, what it looks like on that day uh, and then it could be anything from uh, planning the pitch, uh, pitch sessions that we do so the on-pitch rehab and we also go into the gym and um, we look at stuff that they do before they go out to train uh, and then from there it's uh, gym sessions in the afternoon or it could be top-up conditioning um, and then a lot of meetings during the day to the, discuss what else is going to go on. Good and uh, also we're, we're joined by Shane Murphy who is, uh, well Shane introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about what your, your role is at the club. Yeah um, so my name is Shane Murphy, I'm the lead sports scientist and SNC coach at Manchester City uh, with the under 23s. Um, so my main role is the readiness and the performance of the fit players uh, in the squad so Will obviously takes the injured boys, I'm more from the performance and the fit, fit players perspective. Um, I guess my key stakeholders are the coaches. Um, I have to deal very closely with the coaches and on what they want out of the session and trying to establish a good um, physical foothold within the sessions. That's my primary goal from there. Um, I also ensure that our boys are getting the right um, gym stimulus throughout the week. And because our 23s are involved in, in what would what we'd see a first team schedule, it's ensuring that our schedule um, uh, deals with the, the then schedule so we, we're, we're getting the right gym stimulus we're getting the right recovery and the lads are, are, are kind of ready to play two games a week um, this season majority of our games occurred with a three day gap in between games so it's ensuring the lads were prepared for that um, it's a nice step for them their next step will be a loan uh, or a first team involvement so it's a nice environment for these boys to flourish so Perfect. So, so you're working quite closely together, guys. Um, with Will, you're working primarily on the rehabilitation side. With Shane, you're working mostly on the performance side. Um, just listening to you, to you guys there, just an initial conversation to start with is um, we talk a lot about sort of coach-athlete relationship um, and we're very fortunate in what we do that we sort of, we're the coach and we have an athlete and we work one-to-one, -one, but you guys work very much inside a team and just listening to you guys, you obviously 
working together on when when is the player crossing from perform from injury to performance. Plus, you've got a skills coach. Plus, you've got a technical coach. You've got a tactical coaches. So, just I mean, generalize, guys. How, how does that? You, Will you alluded to? You have a lot of meetings during the day, and I'm assuming that those meetings are to help this process be very smooth. But for those people who aren't fortunate enough to be working in one of the best football clubs in the world, how is the management structure? How how do you guys communicate? How are meetings held? How how does it all go? I mean, it'd be great to hear from both of you on that. Uh, yeah, so f- uh, for me, like I'm primarily in meetings to discuss uh, really what my players are going to be doing um, for training that day. So obviously we know when they, when they get injured, uh, we can't just throw them back in. So we have to ease them back into training. So my involvement in the meetings there would be uh, what parts of training the players are going to take part in. Um, and with that as well, I, have to, I work very closely with Shane um, to discuss this around how much I actually want them doing. Um, and also as well as like topping up players uh, from that. Um, but yeah, the meetings as well, like um, we have a lot of injury meetings to discuss exactly what we're doing with players. Uh, and this is people that uh, are above us management wise to it's really just to showcase what's going on and what we're actually doing with these players to get them back onto the pitch. Um, so it's a great opportunity for us to throw ideas around and just ultimately just get to best practice, which is what we want to do. Yeah, from uh, my perspective, I guess most of my meetings are about um, ensuring that the players um, get the right schedule um, because the 23s are quite a young uh, squad at, at Man City we're quite young for an under 23s group we're basically 17 and 18 year olds we cross a lot of age groups so when the schedule gets quite busy and hectic it's just ensuring that globally we're, we're not undercooking or overcooking players so it's just trying to map out their week and month uh, so it's really important that players don't fall through the net. So it's just ensuring that everyone uh, knows what's going on, what players have been involved in, whether they've been with the first team, whether they've been with the 18s or whether they've been with 23s or international duty. So it's just um, constantly monitoring where players are up and down and, and making the right decisions with the key stakeholders to ensure our players don't fall through the net. So, so picking up a, a bit of terminology, you guys, there, you sort of key key stakeholders and overcooking and undercooking, and I guess that's what you, your guys ultimately your job is. So, we'll start with you. You you, you talked about the schedule that you said that you know that we were fitting them into the schedule, and then I'm deciding how much of the training they're able to participate in today. So, who's setting that schedule? Who's in charge of that training? Do we, is it the head of performance? Is it the head coach? Yeah, as in is in the football coach rather than the, the the strength and conditioning coach, and 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 how is that? How is the planning process? Like obviously, you're given a schedule that says this is what training is today. But how do how do you come to this is training today? Who? Because for me, I write training myself. Then I have training for the athlete. Who who makes those final decisions? Who writes the training plans? And and how how is the week uh, alluded to? Yeah, oh, so we come to. Yeah, so from a training perspective. Um, football's first right so uh, the coach would decide the sort of overlook of how, how training should look what he wants tactically and i guess where the support network around that to try and embed the physical within the in the session um everything we do is trying to integrate all components of of the player so like the mental side the tactical side the technical side and the physical side um to ensure that the session isn't in silos that every component of the session is either targeting or overloading or specific to that area um so it's important that I work closely with the coach to ensure like so the overview of the day is we want some high speed running um he wants to do some pressing from the front they kind of go hand in hand if we design the session right we can, i can get what i need out of it and the coach gets what he needs out of it so it's a very much a collaboration between me and the coach and also the physio to ensure that he's happy with the player he's coming back into training or maybe he's had a tough uh, a game so he needs to reduce his load or whatever it is so whatever player we're talking about it's having all the people in the room talking about their desired outcome and trying to find a fit that works best for everyone so we're not working in silos yeah i think for for the guys listening at home just just to give you an appreciation of how how difficult i find what you're talking about with one athlete to, to, to sit in a, in a team there where you've got many different coaches in a room with a different opinion a different strategy different structure and then you've got different athletes at different fatigue states at different times it's not an easy task uh, you you sound you make it sound like it, of course it is your daily job and so you're used to it but I think for the listeners at home it's fascinating to see how such a 
all these very small cogs come together to, to be training and have, have the guys out there. Uh, you mentioned um, overcooking and undercooking previously, and, and, and Joust and I did a podcast just just two podcasts ago. Joust was it on on how we we measure acute chronic within CrossFit? Um, we had a question from a listener about balancing balancing the sort of exactly that. How do we monitor our athletes? how does acute chronic look within football how do you guys measure how do you guys look at the training load and how do you have that discussion with the coach and are you listened to by the coach you know does the coach just say look these guys need to be doing this or do you have a sort of certain sway or say that they're doing too much they're injury risk and uh, I think that process is very interesting for the listeners yeah for me on the rehab side of things it's it's, uh, fits slightly different with Shane but um, for me like they go from zero uh, and then back onto the pitch so acute chronic initially um, isn't going to tell me a great deal but obviously as we do progress through rehab uh, that's where it, it does become important for me so using the GPS metrics um, there's a number of metrics that we collect and we do use uh, and we look at acute chronic on all of those um, so I, I absolutely love a spreadsheet so love Excel so uh, I've got loads of things there just to uh, keep an eye on that but my relationship is more working with a medical team rather than the coaches initially uh, to monitor those metrics and make sure we're staying aligned with what we want to do uh, and then this is when we then go into training and I start having conversations with Shane about what is going to be suitable for the players because obviously he works with the coach around what the content of the session is and for example if, if it is a high speed day and we know we're going to be going anywhere near max speed um, for some of my players it might not be suitable so that's when we have to draw them out of certain components because uh, I know if I let them go loose then we might get that um, that big spike uh, in load which is obviously a greater risk of injury for those boys so that's how I manage it from my perspective so do you do you place restrictions on how fast they can run and how, how do you cognitively ask them do you say look you're not allowed to go past a 7 out of 10 or 70% or do you just pull them out to a different drill but how do you communicate that with the athletes yeah especially initially uh, from the early stages it is a case of um here's a pole run to that pole at that pace and we're very fortunate now where we we do have live gps so i can wear a watch uh, which tells me the speeds they're going at um so initially i start off uh, just say stride out for example which is usually around 70 percent of their max uh, and then we can just steadily build from there up to the desired speed that i want essentially and nine times out of ten players do get it right um, they, they know their body well enough to know what certain speeds are but every now and then you do get one who um, gets overexcited and does go for the big sprint which uh, then you have to rein them back in obviously yeah from um, just a general training point of view I think the coaches at Manchester are very uh, educated on how you can manipulate variables within a session to get a desired effect so say for instance we have a possession and uh, we we want uh, certain variables to come out of those by changing the pitch sizes, by adding in a floater, by putting in men. There's, there's many of the, or the coach interaction or how the structure of the session looks has a big bearing on the physical output of that session. And through a review and uh, a constant monitoring and progression and regressions, we can almost get a best fit for our sessions. Like you, over over a season or two seasons, you get to know the trends of, of drills. So when we do this drill, we get X. When we do this drill, we get Y. And you can start put, um, adding the pieces of the jigsaw together to get the outcome you, you you require. So having an overview of what you're looking for each session and then a coach and understanding how he can manipulate the variables to get where you want from a physical point of view um, lends itself really well to that acute chronic load throughout a season, I think. Um, yeah. So uh, how much are you guys listened to? Um in terms of you know I've worked with some and I, I'm not I'm not saying there are awkward coaches there but I'm just saying you know I've worked with awkward coaches or worked with coaches who are who have their ways and their fixed ways and it's not always the coach's intuition goes with sports science um, and, and nor should it you know I think there's still there is still room and place for coach intuition as much as, as much as there is room for sports science so how much are you guys how much sway do you have do you, if you get a chance to go over and say look look they're done now they're cooked or 
is that is that is that a day is it is a daily occurrences where where the coach intuition overrules the sports scientist are you listen to how's that relationship I think it's quite an interesting it's quite an interesting balance because I mean I'm doing both and I conflict with myself you know my intuition says I'm going to push them a little bit more but my the sports science head says they're probably where they need to be and I, I have that conflict with myself quite often so I just wondered how you must have that you, it must occur and, and how do you manage it and, and are you listen to and, and is uh, and, and, and good stories there yeah um, it definitely occurs because um, every practitioner has a bias so football coach will have his bias in terms of the tactical and tactical obviously from a sports science point of view we have a bias around the physical so I, I guess when two people are having mutual understanding and appreciation for the other side of the game I think it, it, it helps with the relationship and the relationship is the biggest thing unless you have that relationship with a coach and that's one of the biggest things that I try and do from the start is to, to develop a relationship where he knows that I understand what he's trying to achieve and then it, obviously we go hand in hand together that's really important um, yeah, there's been instances throughout like um, my whole career really where you've had to maybe say things that there's not you know it's not going to be um um, it's not going to be the the thing they want to hear but I think when you come from a good place and you come from the right place and they understand I think it's a lot easier to be listened to um, but does it, it, it I, I come back to like it's a bandwidth of what I accept and what I don't accept when sometimes it's it can it's sort of like 50-50 in my own, my own head that's not a battle that I would choose to fight if you like but when I know that it's going to be detrimental to performance, then maybe it's a deeper discussion. Then maybe the discussion needs to be had. I think there's a, there's a bit of a take-home point there for coaches listening. That um, it's, I think this is a great way of describing it. If it's a 50-50 battle in my head, I'll let it go. But if it goes to 80-20, I'm going to take the fight. I think that's quite a, a good for all coaches to... Very often, very often coaches will say, you'll ask coach, why have you done that? And then coaches are almost scared to trust their intuition. They sort of write a program based because it felt right. And they think that's wrong because it isn't based on science. But sometimes we just need to go with that, don't we? We need to just trust that that conflict. So we did a, we did a podcast, what was it, two, three podcasts ago where we talked about talk. We called it Talking the Talk. We talked about talk transfer and energy transfer in the body biomechanically. Um, what's what's the biomechanical outputs or biomechanical data and, and data sets you guys are using? How are you measuring uh, stress, sort of ligament stress, joint stress, muscular stress? Um, how are you testing guys? Will from your rehabilitation side of things, how are you getting players back training again? What what protocols you're using? Um, general overview would be great, bud. Yeah, so for us, um, we do have a set protocol in the club um, that we follow from. I think it's from. Um, 15 upwards um, and obviously as you go through the age group it does we have progressively have more tests um, and yeah like it does depend on the injury obviously um, we range from capacity testing uh, which is the maximum number of reps you can do for example uh, in a hamstring bridge um, and then we also look at uh, max force as well which would for example be a Nordic curl uh, and then really it just depends on the uh, muscle that's injured and we look at certain tests that we know are going to isolate these muscle groups um, and then it's going to give us the feedback and you know with, with some special cases as well um, there, are, there are times where the test tells you all the right things and it tells you the player's getting better it tells you they're getting stronger uh, and they're getting closer and closer to returning um, but then obviously we, we can look outside that and go even further in terms of biomechanical analysis where we have um, uh, in the institute over the road from the club and we can send them over there for a running biomechanical assessment uh, where they run on force plates as well so we get feedback from that uh, and different jumping and landing tests that they do so um, it's a really holistic profile that we that we can get for the player um, and it's one that is constantly being developed uh, not just at our club but in sport in general so it's a big area like the testing and there's more and more pieces of equipment that are coming out um, and you could argue that they are telling us one thing only which is the the maximum force a muscle can reduce in isolation um, but at the moment that's, that's where we're at yeah okay great so 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 applying the you know we us guys we've worked a little bit together and we've we've talked a, a little bit together um we've got sort of enormous amount of respect for evidence-based practice and understanding 
um, and, and understanding return to sport protocols where where we're often podcasting and talking on and, and where we're coming from is that we think that the medical procedure and the the isolated or isometric testing um, and then strength and conditioning worlds are very well researched and very well done I think my my sort of understanding of sport or how I'm looking at sport the sort of return to sport protocol the middle ground there I think is slightly larger than the, than 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 potentially is being used in not just football in across all sports how do you guys how do you guys view that gap between the middle I mean you just alluded to it yourself there that they score well on their protocols or score score well on the Nordics for example and then you sort of then at that point you're handing them over to Shane who's then saying right okay they're fit for practice they're, they're fit for play where, where they're not always are they and, and for me sport is missing the middle ground there's, there's, there's a sort of a bit of a world missing in that sort of return to sport protocol are you experiencing the same could, could we be doing that better across all sport or are we getting this spot on uh yeah so working so closely in the rehab uh setting um the thing that i go back to is uh i completely agree and the way i look at it is uh the physios are very much the defenders and the snc coaches very much the attackers but we're lacking midfielders that there is a, there is a big gap there um within the process uh and and you're right that you know there's some great research that is coming out and it's saying um we can reduce injuries if we do get people stronger in these certain tests but we do also have outliers. Um, and just from my experience, um, being in this industry, that there are a lot of outliers and uh, these guys tend to break down time and time again. Um, and so yeah, they are the ones that do defy the test ultimately, um, which is what ultimately got us onto this journey um, to discover the why as to why we're seeing this happening and what's, what's going on. Um, and and f- from my opinion, you do see these gaps, but only in only in movement only when you put the player in their sport uh, and you analyze them in their sport and and for me that is where you find the gaps so 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 away from football now it doesn't matter how are you analyzing them in movement what is it you're doing um talk us through that but i know both of you have got got an opinion on it so just talk us through what you're what are you doing what you know you you say very easily uh i'm analyzing them in movement or analyzing them in this sport go into detail on that for us please yeah so uh there's there's two things there so i can look at them on the pitch um but on the pitch they can hide very well so the high velocity movements um they do mask movement very well in those so a lot of time we have to take them away from the pitch and bring them into the gym and really break the movements down and uh, make it a lot simpler essentially um and what we want to do is when, when we see the sport we want to think how can i get as close to that sport as possible to analyze them in their sport um i know you've alluded to it before but the functional continuum is is what we is what we, myself and shane do use um, and we want to stay as close to football as possible so we look at uh multi-joint multi-joint movements essentially uh what what are they telling us and we can also profile so we can look at the feet we can look at the hips and we can look at the spine uh, how are those three uh, working first and foremost in isolation but then we can then group them um, and get a full profile from that as well and what you do find is um, everyone's different but like everyone isn't like everyone is an individual and uh, what they present is completely different from one another um, but then at the same time you can also find some trends in football you know like the adaptations that we we do get from the sport um, they are they are glaring when you start to analyze a few of the players as well uh so yeah that that is ultimately the gap for me you know like we're doing some great work like the physios have their tests on the bed uh where they get to build a profile on the player and it tells them a lot uh, and they do bring that information to me and you know it it, at times it can marry up like what they say uh, they're seeing and what i say that i'm seeing we we do marry up um but at times it, it is for very different reasons as well um, and then also from my own testing, you know, I can bring stuff to them where, you know, I'm seeing this uh, when they're stood up and at times they don't see that when they're lying down. So for me, that is where the gap is. Yeah, I also find that in a performance setting when um, I used to way back when, when I first graduated, it was all about just getting as strong as I possibly could or the athlete get them as strong as, as I could. And I always thought that once they got that strong, 
the speed, for instance, would increase. But I found uh, in some cases players got quicker, some didn't change what whatsoever, and some even got a little bit slower. So I think that initiated the the why for me. Like, well, why would this happen? Where is the gap? What am I not seeing? And a more recent example was um, a goalkeeper wanted to kick the ball further. Um, so when I analysed his performance, I could see where the energy leak was energy leak occurred at the hip so once the foot hit the floor and forces started traveling up through the body the hip just collapsed and it didn't allow him to follow through so he couldn't kick through that leg if you can imagine a golf swing he just had the back swing and no 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 swings through no follow through um and just through working with him in the gym and then like as will said regressing back into the gym finding that energy leak and finding that gap within a gym setting um we addressed it and we didn't do any kicking protocol we just addressed the leak and unfortunately he managed to kick the ball a lot further so um I, that's just one example i guess of how we analyze the movement from a performance point of view where the gaps are and then try and rest it back into a setting that we can affect um i think um like we mentioned the test before that we use and and the thing that is missing is only the principles that um that we go back to uh the key ones being the the ground reaction force uh, and the gravity and we know that the impact that this has on movement um and as soon as we take those two things away uh we're no longer assessing them in their sport ultimately um and, and that is what the the strength test can't can't tell you essentially you know if you're missing those two key components i think you're not analyzing them in their sport yeah. So, so just for just for listeners, how many? When did you guys start? How, when did you graduate sports science? Will how long have you been working? Uh, I've been in professional sport now for six years, um, and now I've been coaching athletes for must be ten years now. Okay, and Shane. Yeah, I've been uh, in football 10 years, graduated 2010, and I've been in football ever since, and I did a placement at, uh, during my degree as well. Okay. Yeah. So are you are you guys also football fans? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, bearing in mind there is a right answer to this, uh, what, what, what are your teams? Yeah, it's Man City. Yeah, it's Man City. Yeah. 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 And through, through and through. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and we ask you that again with the microphone off, and would it be the same? Blue Moon. Yeah. Okay. Um, Joust, what's your team? The red half of Manchester, mate. The red half of Manchester. It's interesting. How do you guys feel about doing a podcast with the enemy? If I'm being honest, before I worked at Man City, I was a red. Okay. A, a, a Manchester red? Yeah. Oh, dear. Well, he's not from Manchester, mate, so he's allowed to support Manchester United. While we're being honest, I used to be a Liverpool fan. Okay. But it does change you, does it? Working for the club that you get that passionate about, it, you get that involved. Is it is it, is it the players that, that change you or is it the club that changes you? I, well, for me, uh, uh, personally, it's the players. Um, yes, the club, you get an affinity for the club, but it's more about the player. Um, often you're checking like Sky Sports News comes up or flash cards, whatever you have on your, your phone. And it's always the individuals who you used to work with that you're always interested in whatever club they're playing for. Um, I look at the leagues now and there's always a player I remember working with and all, and I'm always interested in how he's doing. So I guess the, I've become less of a fan of a team and more of a fan of an athlete or a player. Um, I kind of lost that like shouting at the screen when a team would lose that's kind of gone from me now but it's more about the individual um, and how he's doing I think that's really interesting because you know I've, I've had people I worked with 10 years ago and I still check their results and still see how they're getting on and, and then it's quite interesting they sort of get inside you somehow don't they and, and it's, you sort of follow that um, so from a coaching standpoint the um, how do you guys deal with the psychological aspects of injury how are you are you guys trained as coaches to coach do you have to figure it out yourself i mean i know yourself i know myself an athlete's crying in your arms because they've just got that 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 news and and for for many people they don't understand how it can be such a big thing but for us that work and live in professional sport an athlete that has to have six months out is is a loss for them uh, i wouldn't call it so so go so far as call it a death but it's a loss and it requires a grieving process are you guys trained in how to deal with that um at the very top level of sport and if not how do you deal with it what, what are your strategies um so when i started my degree psychology was a uh, part of it and i think it got dropped after the first year uh deemed it not to be that important um 
but the more and more I work in this industry, the more and more I realize it's, it's probably the most important thing. Um, especially working with the uh, injured players, uh, like you said, like an, a nine month injury is devastating for players. Like the, these guys live for their sport. Uh, and if you take that away, often they don't have anything left. Um, so for me, how I deal with that is I really want to get to know the individual that I'm working with. Um, at times, Shane will have a better relationship with players because uh, often some of, the, some of these guys never get injured and then all of a sudden they're out for nine months with me. Uh, so that's where I do communicate with Shane and you know I speak to him about the player and what he knows about them. And um, like for me, I feel, I feel it's, a, it's a strength of mine really getting to know players. Um, I really want to know what drives them as well as people. So I, I talk to them and say like, well, why, why are you here? Um, a lot of them, it's, it's the same reason. Um, family, money, uh, whatever it is, I, I don't care. I just want to know what is driving them and how I'm going to get the, the most out of them essentially. And um, and yeah, like it's, it's then how do, how do I make rehab fun? Like what can I do for them to keep them uh, buying into the process? And for me, it's about setting uh, lots of mini goals, no matter where they are in their rehab. You know, a lot of these guys who they're on crutches for months and muscle weight, muscle wastage, and you know, they want to get that back. So, okay, that's, that's a goal then let's go for it. Let's, let's shoot for it. And then that's, that's that goal ticked off. And what's the next one? What's the next one? What's the next one? And that, that process will continue until um, they are back on pitch and they're, they're back working with Shane. Yeah, I think it's one of the most exciting parts. Um, just, I think, personally speaking, I I have terrible shoulders, as you pointed out a few times, Phil. Um, and I uh, dislocated about seven times and I had an operation. I thought that was it. It was fixed. Did it again after being an operation. It was a 5% chance of me ever doing my shoulder again. And I did it. And having that re-injury, just, uh, it, it got me. I was, I, was, I was a bit under. And I, every time a player gets injured or goes through a rough time, I kind of... Uh, not that I had the same level or same thing to lose, but I can, I can empathise with what's going on in your head. Um, but for me, like the best part of my job is working with the players. Like, I, there's nothing better than and meeting the players every day and then trying to get the best out of them. And as Will alluded to, it's all about the relationship you have with players. Um, we have a lot of we collect a lot of data uh, in our industry and the data doesn't live unless you know what the context is and then you only know the context if you know the player. Um, so I think that's one of the, the fun part of it. It's up and down, it's emotional, It's um, you can get everything in any given day. Um, but it, the, uh, the more and more you work with a player, the better relationship we have them, gives you a better feeling about your work. So, so on that then, if we're talking about injury, injury in football, um, putting you under a bit of pressure, guys, sort of quite honest question, because I know it's a question that's very relevant and a lot of people think of it. The, the prevalence of injury in football appears, and it might just be media, but it appears to be significantly higher than any other sport. Um, is, there, is there validity in that? If there is... Can you shed some light on as to why is football f f more physically demanding than any other sport? Is is there the twists and the turns at the high speed twists and turns? First, so the first question is, is 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 are there more injuries in football? And if there are, why is that? Um, yeah, good question. Um, relatively to other sports, I actually I'm not sure, but I know the sport. And the history of the sport in the last 10, 15 years has um, exponentially got quicker. Um, the athletes are faster, they're covering more um, high-speed running and sprint distance. Um, and the total distance hasn't really changed. So it tells you relatively it's also gone up in terms of the, the density of the of the running. So that's happened. But also on the flip side, injuries have gone up, I think, 4% every year. So there is a high prevalence of injury in football, for sure. I think that's valid to say. I don't know in comparison to other sports what it is. But I think uh, football is that unique sport where it's a blend of a lot of different physical attributes so you you can list out all the things that happen in a game and no one aspect of physical uh, physical quality is is predominant there's so many different varieties of players playing the sport and are successful in the sport you've got tall players small players quick players slow players even that, that play the sport so it's multifaceted in terms of like the the profile of the, of a footballer 
Um, in my opinion, maybe why the injuries are so prevalent. Yes, you have an increase in, in load, so the demand is high. They play a lot of games. And you you may question maybe how footballers train. Um, what what are we what are we doing in terms of our prehabilitation or gym strengthening? Um, I think it's a multi-directional sport, but I see a lot of one plane movements happening a lot. Um, it's a very transverse plane movement or sport, but a lot of the exercises in our sport are sagittal plane dominant. Could be one reason why we maybe not tackling the problem the second thing is i think some of the studies within our sport that inform our practice are all about tension they're all about how much tension do we get in that specific muscle and then that drives our techniques or our exercises so we get fixed uh, fixated on tension as opposed to fixated on function and they're very they're two obviously very different things so there's a secondary thing that i would maybe add to that I think just to uh, build on top of that as well, um, I wonder I wonder the reduction of injury we'd have if um, we didn't have MRI scanners and that sort of thing. Um, I, th- I think I think I think too often like we we just go to that and there is a saying within the industry of uh, treat the man and not the scan. Uh, I'm yet to see that happen. Um, just just from, from my opinion, it's uh, I, I think I think players would play through a lot more um, if we didn't tell them there was something wrong with them. You know, and um, I wonder. I wonder if they are actually injured at times, and uh, it's, it is. It is hard to say, but you know, I've worked in in rugby as as well as football, and uh, like the things that go on in that sport of the players running into each other as fast as they can every single weekend and, and smashing the hell out of each other, but they're able to come in on Monday morning and and pick up like pick up where they left up from, and like nothing happened at all, you know. Um, and I wonder if, if football has fallen into this category of you know, there's a lot of money in football, so we are able to to scan people as much as we want um, but I, I don't necessarily think that is a good thing you know and don't get me wrong the more the more serious injuries uh, the joint injuries and that sort of thing like we, we do have to look at them but there are times where if a player feels the, the slightest um, little niggle then they're coming off the pitch they're pulling themselves off and automatically they're, they're out for a few weeks you know um, so I do wonder where, where it would be if we didn't have the scanners it's a, it's a little bit like Pavlov's dog isn't it like they get in condition to when you go into that MRI scan they're starting to feel something they get scanned they're told it's torn so then they're told they're injured and they're out for a period of time and then that same feeling happens again so they automatically think well I felt this last time so I need to report it I've potentially got a muscle tear scanned again and the um the process kind of repeats itself, doesn't it? Um, question on uh, what you were saying earlier, Shane, like obviously injury rates gone up um, and that could be attributed to the the increasing speed in the sport. High speed running is higher. The density of that high speed running within the game is what is what you said. Has the training in that time period changed as well? to accompany that speed has there, has there been a shift in in that speed training to counterbalance or h- how do you guys work around that yeah I, I think um, the influence of GPS has enabled people to make better decisions around training so I do feel that we we're very good at knowing what the match demands are there's a lot of research behind what the match demands are and how we replicate that in training so I think there was a, a bigger gap back way back even if you look at the said the prevalence of injuries we talked about that but also where the injuries are occur, occurring they used to always be in match play and never in training I'm not saying that shouldn't be that way we shouldn't really get injured as, as the primary goal but we the training used to be so far off the match play that there wasn't even a chance to get injured almost so I think we're, we're getting better I can only speak from where I we're, we're good at matching up what training should look like compared to a game that's a that's a must for us even sometimes our match our training is more than a game in terms of certain metrics so speaking about where we are I think yeah it has matched up or it is uh, trying to definitely match up uh, with the demands of the match and is that like 
session by session or is that spread throughout a week or it depends on the schedule and also not a great answer but it, it does depend on on yeah. the schedule but if you had a week to week then it would different uh, typically how we work is different f- um physical qualities are worked on different days you know they're spread out over so we can overload that certain area of physical development um to get an adaptation long term i guess so that's what we would do if we got enough time we separate the parts if we don't have time it's more of a hybrid approach um to try and tackle the the match the intensity of the game should we ask the question um you're welcome to say no um but should we ask the question that if injury rates go up four percent year on year are we doing something wrong with our conditioning Yeah. Um, so when we when we say condition, obviously we, we mean uh, training yeah. every component. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I mean, not, I mean yeah. you guys, it's, it's, it's incredible to listen to how detailed you are. It's nice to meet other coaches that have the same sort of attention to detail that we, we're trying to put and we're aspiring to to within our sports. But there is a disconnect, isn't there? You know, if the statistics say injuries get worse by 4% each year and our job as strength and conditioning coaches is to condition people for, strengthen and condition people for their sport, injury rates, if we're doing that job right, injury rates should be falling, not increasing. Do we need to talk about that? Yeah, I think we do. But, um, you know, I, I, I do think there's there's some great stuff that is going on in the industry. Um, there is some really great work coming out there. Uh, and for me, that's more the on-pitch stuff that we do. Um, building around uh, GPS and, and that sort of thing and getting players up to speed there. But uh, like we alluded to before, the gap for me uh, is what we'd say the gym stuff. Right. Yeah, that, that is the gap fundamentally for me. Um, how we're analyzing our players. Um, I feel like I feel like we're almost coming away from that uh, as an industry. I feel like we're actually going uh, in the other direction of um, not even analyzing movement anymore. But it's it's you know we, we, there's videos going out there now of um, look at these exercises, look at these exercises. How this is how I train the hamstring, but like there's no consideration there for the athlete you're working with is there you know how, how can you how can you have standardized protocols for an injury when every single person's individual like how, how i tear a hamstring might be completely different to how someone else tears their hamstring you know and these are factors that need to be considered um so for me like this is it goes back to doesn't it like the strategy uh, and therefore the technique like i think that's where we are lost at the moment like the strategies that we're going with um they're not they're not they're not telling us the right things about the players essentially and i kind of see it as um it's more of who survives at the moment like they're the ones that come through um the reason that i got into the rehab side of things is uh i was injured constantly myself as an athlete um so i know what it's like but i feel like a real connection with players who who do get injured time and time again um and for me, I was doing everything right in my eyes. You know, I, I went to university. I, I learned everything I could there. And I, and I went, went into the real world and learned about best practice there. And, you know, I'm applying every single principle that I'm being told to do and what I learned. But it's still not working, you know. And um, for these players who are constantly breaking down, I want to know why. Um, and for me now, I feel like I'm, I'm slowly getting there. Um, but the approach is, is very different to what the industry currently advocates. Yeah, I, th- I don't think any practitioner out there is happy with a 4% increase in injury rates every year. I don't think anyone um, would be happy with that. Um, I guess it comes back to our neat analysis of why that is, and there's obviously a few factors. Um, but I, I, I've thought this for a while, that the, the illusion, the evolution of technology is almost crazy, the illusion that we're getting better. But all we're doing is just measuring tension better. Like function takes time to understand and develop. And uh, sometimes we don't always take the time to understand what actually function is for the athlete and what he looks like and where the gap is and where we're trying to get to. Um, Sometimes we're too fixated in the number a test is telling us whereas how that person performed that test or you know if the test is relevant how he performed it may may give you more insight into where they should be 
And I recently, uh, I recently heard a quote um, that came out from a rehab expert, we'd say in our industry, which was uh, the sport doesn't matter. Um, and for me, this is probably one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. Um, for me, that is, is one of the most important things. Like, how, how do I know I'm, what I'm training an athlete for? Like, every single sport is different, you know, and you can't apply the same principle from one sport to another on an athlete. It, it, it just doesn't work, you know, and, and that's ultimately where the understanding needs to be better from us as practitioners. You know, like, um, I'm going back to the gap again of the physios and the SNCs, like the physios have all the great knowledge around anatomy and the human body, and the SNCs have great knowledge around, you know, getting people stronger and planning training and that sort of thing, but there is a gap there. You know, and understanding what I would say functional anatomy, how the body's actually working when we're standing up. Um, yeah, so for, for me to say the sport doesn't matter, like it just makes no sense to me at all. I completely agree. <laughs> the sport's everything, isn't it? Yeah. And the understanding of the sport is everything. So, so we're talking about now. I mean, I don't know how much you guys are allowed to share with us. Could you, could you take us through a training week, a typical training week in terms of, we don't need all the metrics, of course, of what you're measuring, but hours, minutes, how, how many kilometers are the guys running a day? Are you, are you guys allowed to share that with us or, or or give us a sort of an overview, if you would, just of, of what a normal training week would be? Yeah, I think um, without talking to any player in specifics, uh, generally uh, in a week, if I get, sorry, start with a game, I guess. In a game, typically a player will cover 11 to 12k some players supersede this and some we actually have in cases where they're covering 14k as a midfielder which is quite impressive um but typically it's around 11 12k high speed running varies from position and i guess this comes back to your first question about how do we monitor players within our training week because we have discrepancies between center halves if their positioning is really good end up covering 400 less high speed running in a game not getting nowhere near max speed if the positioning is good uh, and we kept the ball for long periods of time uh, but our, our wide players covering over 1200 high speed running so the discrepancy in a match game is, is huge depending on how the game pans out um, and like I said you could have defenders really low center half typically and wide players quite significantly higher um, but in a, if you're just talking generally in a week we're aiming for or we look to get or what is output it is around 35k in, in total distance per week um, our lads will cover around 2000 high speed um, sprint distance is another threshold that we look at so that could be 200 to, to 400 um, and excels decels then are, are varied I guess when each position but they're the kind of main variables that we look at um, but again we always have to take it back to what again as, as will allude to the sport but also the sport and that position so that position denotes a lot of training because um, if a player doesn't need to do certain amounts then are we overloading for the sake of overloading you know what I mean we obviously have to condition him for more than what the game is needed but we have to respect his position and his role within the team yeah it's very interesting so, so how then do you guys manage multiple games a week um, what's the strategy there do you and what, what's the recovery process after a game so is a recovery process after a game different if they're playing two times a week do you come in the day after and train is there a, a day off um, what's the yes there's two questions there essentially there's the how do you what, what, what's the post-match recovery routine and then how do you guys manage the load of playing twice in one week yeah um, there's more factors than just our schedule to contend with certainly in my role uh, we have to be mindful of what our first team are doing because that's so important that our schedule almost matches up with them and sometimes our games doesn't match up with them so we are um, we can be limited to our choices if that makes sense but typically um, we may do a recovery session the day after a game and then we're at a training again depending on the schedule or we, perhaps if they've had a busy week we can give them a day off and that's more from a mental point of view than a, than a physical point of view um, our players are quite young as I've mentioned so they have so many other parts of their development like education Edu they might do 7-8 hours 10 hours a week of education that's including travelling to you know European fixtures that could be two games in a week there's a lot of factors that con are considered before we make decisions on what the recovery protocol is 
um, and that's largely based on the schedule and what they're about to go into. Good. That's great. That's really good to know. So, so it's it's, it's monitored um, in terms of the recovery after a game. Um, I mean, when when I was playing. Um, I'm the only rugby player in the room but when we was playing sort of pro rugby we were put in an ice bath we were sort of dropped in a black bucket from a height and we did the sort of hot showers and of course as a coach myself I have an opinion on that now but what's what's going on after games are you got are they going massages are they stretching are they cooling down are they running are they what, what you guys is obviously you lead that don't you Shane that's what one of your yeah. jobs or just can you, can you talk us through that procedure yeah I mean when we again just to, to illustrate some of the factors when we play in different stadiums or wherever we are we, we there's certain things we can control whether ice bats are available or, or whatever it may be but one thing we can control a bit more is our nutrition and that's one thing we push very heavily on our players that they have set protocols that we need to have and there's certain amounts of nutrition they need to get into them when the game finishes um, so we're very keen on that player will start his immediate recovery from the minute the whistle goes that he's getting in the right nutrition and we have a nutritionist on board at the club who can write sometimes individualized programs for that player but um one thing we can control is what we feed them and you know i think that's one thing that we're very keen on the rest of it depends on where we are if we're at home we can get ice bath protocols we've even used cases where we uh, cryo chamber some of our players if we were at home and we get used to the first team facility uh, it just depends on the schedule but ice bath would be a thing that we look for if we can if it's available to us cryo if we even have that advancement um but nutrition is our, our like gold standard to try and get that right uh, post game Good guys. So moving on, moving on a little bit. Um, I'd like I'd like to sort of ask you a personal question. Really, it's something that interests me a lot. I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about. It. I'm sure, I'm, I'm hoping the listeners will, will enjoy it as well. Um, I look at the psychological pressures that my athletes are dealing with on a daily basis. You know, expectation from fans, from family, the expectation to perform. Um, and then I look at football um, and. And I'm one of probably the few defenders of football salaries. I know there's many people out there that, that are very, very critical of the amount of money football players are earning. Um, and I think that I know the pressure I feel as a coach going to a big event with an athlete. Um, and I know the, the pressures I feel that, you know, when, when the athlete wins or the athlete does very well, I tend to feel that, you know, the athlete did very very well and I tend to feel like if the athlete didn't do particularly well or didn't get the result I feel a lot of pressure myself almost the responsibility for it and I almost feel a responsibility to the families and I feel a responsibility to the fans and, and, and the pressure and I know how that feels on a slightly smaller level if you compare that to, to football um, being English and, and sort of live or sort of or British sorry growing up in growing in this area you know there's a lot of people in the UK that, that work to pay their season ticket you know their their biggest their biggest uh, day of the week is Saturday afternoon. They live for Saturday afternoon. It's all about you know the first thing an Englishman meets an Englishman. The first thing we talk about is who's your football team. There's a reason for that. We grow up with it. There's passion, but but at the same time, the guys walk out. These young guys, they're not you know they're not fifty year old businessmen with leather skin. You know they're they're young guys that are under an enormous amount of pressure. Um, where the hearts of millions, literally millions of people on their sleeves and they, they're asked to go out and perform every day, every time and they're scrutinised, every step is scrutinised and, and we all, and I appreciate how hard it is to kick a ball under at full speed, 89 minutes under fatigue and potentially miss something that which doesn't just affect your day, affects the days and lives of, of, of millions and millions of people and, and I feel quite, I feel quite sorry for them. I think they're well remunerated for it and they should be. Uh, that's why I defend the salaries. You guys are working with the youth. You guys are working with the guys who are going to be the next Harry Kane's um, of the world. What what protocols? What are you guys putting in place to prepare these guys for that? Do they already? Oh, sorry. Another do they do they already feel this pressure? Can you already sense it on them that they're starting to have expectations of mum and dad and and fans and girlfriends or whatever it may be? And 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 are you supporting them? And are you preparing them for that next step to be playing in front of eighty thousand people with another million watching them around the world and 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 living with that expectation of people? Yeah. If I if I try and bring it back to a. <coughs> 
uh, rehab setting. Um, some of the lads that I've worked with and you know, like you just, you just accept that they're, they're on these big wages and, um, you know, it, it's never anything that it doesn't bother me at any point in my job that they're earning this money. But, um, cause I, I do see the pressure that comes with it, you know, and it is a hell of a lot of responsibility on these boys. Um, but some of these lads at such a young age are supporting their families, you know, and, and that's weighing on them. And it, when I've had boys in rehab, you can see on certain days, um, you know, they might be down and you, you start speaking to them and you start to find out that, you know, like this pressure is getting to them. And ultimately, like if they, if they don't get fixed and um, if they don't stay fit, then like they feel the pressure from their family, yeah. you know, um, and for them, it's a massive burden to carry. You know, and if it, is, if it doesn't work out for them, then what are they going to do after that? Yeah, we're talking about young young guys here, aren't we? We're yeah. talking about 17, 18, 19. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's not their fault they're giving this money. You know, football, football's a business. Yeah. And these players are worth a hell of a lot of money from a young age, you know? And um, so obviously being at the club we're at, we can attract the best players in the world. Um, but yeah, like you said, it does, it does come with a lot of responsibility and they're kind of forced to grow up um as quickly as they can you know and you do, you do get the odd ones who are very professional and they do grow up quick and for them it comes easy and you, you tend to see these players move on to to other clubs and and be very successful but there are a few who who struggle with that and you know they are kids and a lot of the time i have to think back to when i was their age and what was i like at their age and what was i doing and you know when i remind myself of that i think yeah like they, they just need to enjoy the process as well um and I, th I think that's again I worry like how, how many lads are going to fall out of football because they don't enjoy it anymore you know like we, we put them in these academies from such a young age um, and it's all they know like five six days a week of the same thing over and over and over again um, so yeah I, I, yeah. yeah I'd have to agree with all what Will just said there I think sometimes the money can almost dehumanise the players we just look at them and think they're on a lot of money so they don't like life sorted in a way but it's far from the truth like they, these players go through a lot of worries that we all have they have doubts they're human as well they they have their insecurities and 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 they need to be supported through their development um it's really important that we're part of that as well sometimes we the roles that we have because we don't necessarily pick the team or we don't make big decisions on them you you get a bit more insight into their their life and i think oh, if all we are is just uh, an ear to, to listen to then i think we're, we're helping them you know of just verbalize their issues or verbalize their problems or whatever and i think that's a big part of the role really um certainly for where will's at because they're a little bit more emotional i guess because their their identity is a little bit stripped back and uh, when they're playing they're almost happy they're doing what they love whatever but when they get injured things change a little bit um and it's like that 17 year old why car insurance is so expensive for these ages because they see no risk they think it's never going to happen to me i'm not going to be the one to get injured um and sometimes you have to be cruel to be kind and explain to them that like the stats are, I f correct me if I'm wrong, but it might be 1% of all academy players are going to make it as a footballer. That's a frightening stat. Um, so sometimes you have to make them open their eyes and if, that, if that's motivating for them, then great. But I think brushing it under the carpet is doing no one any favours. But I think, like I said at the start, I think it's, understand it's taking away the money side and just treating them as a human. It's only 1% that make it now. Roughly, yeah. I was just about to. I was going to ask you that question actually because I think remember back when I was in that kind of academy set set up. It was back then the stat was about one in eight would make it. Yeah, which is obviously, and I I can't honestly remember the definition of what make it was. Whether that was one in eight in that youth team would go through to the first team and be right. successful there or whether that's just have a career in in football but yeah again that's that one percent shows the um shows how brutal the sporting world is yeah um these lads dreams are yeah it's a lot of pressure yeah and you yeah. often hear that like money isn't everything money isn't the happiness it doesn't unlock all the doors but so if these players leave without any uh, other skills and they're not they're, they're one of the 99 percent 
what have we provided for them in their life that's really important yeah that was literally going to be my next question then so so this 99 percent um that they're in a bit of a catch-22 position because i'm assuming i mean i don't don't know their salaries but i'm assuming they're not earning enough to set them up for life they you say well they're supporting their families some of them which would which would which would sort of suggest that they're you know the they're doing okay with it but I would also I would also guess at the under sort of 19 particularly on the 19 level they're not they're on, on enough money that then sets them up for the rest of their lives are there systems in place educating you said earlier in the podcast that they're doing maybe seven or eight hours of school is that something the club enforces is it is it a rule is it something that the guys because I think it's a wonderful system um, I'd just like to hear perhaps if you quickly just give us a little bit of an overview of that um, yeah the, the evolution of football uh, sorry the education in football is interesting I think back in 2012 13 there wasn't many um, protocol in place anyone could do whatever they chose to do but from then, I can't remember the stats, but I don't know many uh, kids uh, in the academy that were doing A-levels. Now we have many doing A-levels in our academy, which is a credit to them and the, and the club and the education system that we're providing A-levels for full-time athletes, which is, you know, it's tough. Um, it's a tough schedule. These boys have their first team schedules. They're really young. They're playing against opposition that are quite older than them. And they're also doing A-levels. So it's, it's tough on some of the boys. Uh, but I think there's a real push in our academy to, to to provide that education that extra step and we uh, we do a lot of things from younger down 12s and 16s get get almost full-time education in a private school so we did there man city recognize that downfall and are doing everything they can it's just you know it's not every player it's not everyone out there there are the clubs with different budgets so um you know i think having a good support network is really important you know family and, and friends and, and stuff so that's yeah that's that's key i think yeah, I think there's very, it's great to hear. I think it's really good to hear that, that those systems and those are in place. And I think the, the club deserve and a tremendous amount of credit for that. Because um, yeah. as you say, there are, there are, we're going to move on to, to it, but as I say, as, as an ex sports person myself, or the same with Jow, so having some, having sport taken away too early. Um, you know I, I still dream <laughs> I still dream and I still don't think I've accepted now even though I'm too old for it now I don't think I've still accepted now I'm not going to play rugby for England I don't think I'll ever accept that I think I'll be 65 and still think at some point is there a chance I still have that little schoolboy still still sits inside me and 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 and, and I don't think it ever leaves you and I know this, I've worked with and helped but there's also a lot of ex-sports people who do have huge problems coming out of sports so just having any kind of system that supports them and backs them up I think is essential I think it's very very important um, it's great guys we, we're coming close to an end um, good news is Spurs have won in Dortmund um, and they're through to the, the next round which is Harry Kane scored if you didn't know scores when he wants um, so I'm going to ask you two guys uh, put you on the spot a little bit uh, your top moment as a coach so one if you could go back and relive one moment um, what would it be who's going to start they're looking at each other they're sort of passing the buck a little bit here uh-huh. or should we should we pass it on to Jouse yeah Joust, give right. you guys some thinking time yeah go for it top moment as a coach what would it be me and you (laughs) (laughs) I'd say winning Um, because it's the athlete achieving the dream ultimately so the athlete being successful like we were both athletes I'm sure everyone at the table we're we're all interested in sport we all had dreams of achieving high level sports or being a part of an athlete's journey and whatever that win is like that might not necessarily be winning the championship but them getting to their successful marker is is the best thing about coaching for me that's we're here to help people fulfill dreams yeah, I think it's, it's very difficult for me to pick out one moment. Um, but for me, it's seeing like the long-term interplayers that I work with, it's seeing them return to the pitch and, and play games and uh, continue to play games. And like Shane said, like you, you keep an eye on them uh, wherever they go and you keep an eye on their career. And 
and for me like the greatest feeling is just knowing that i helped them get there yeah you know um so yeah it's, i can't say one thing but for sure it doesn't change does it that buzz no. it's funny many sensations dissipate over time yeah and many sort of new feelings just sort of slow slowly ease down a little bit but that feeling of the athlete just i mean for me for my wins are more in training than they are in competition just just seeing the wins or the hugs there that feeling never never gets worse does it it's quite funny how yeah. it's sort of the same feeling every time actually yeah shane what, what, what moment if you've got a particular moment you would pick or it is very hard to pick it it's not like i um sort of fantasize about one moment or whatever but one moment slightly does stand out for me a little bit and um it was one player uh, Phil Foden he, he played for the first team recently and he, he scored a goal and I remember it was less than a year ago he was on the bench for one of our games and I remember asking him um, you know what do you need to work on do you think to, to get in a starting 11 or what what do you need to improve to get in the team and this was for the lower team. this wasn't for the first team and he said nothing I'm ready and within a year he, he played for the first team and when he scored for Manchester City and it's his home club and he's been at the academy since he was eight I, that was uh, probably my favourite moment I think because I worked with him for such a young from such a young age I mean he would have made it with and without me to me I'm not saying for a second that I had any influence <laughs> but um, yeah he was just destined if he if someone cut off his left arm he'd still be a footballer do you know what I mean so uh, but when he scored, uh, I knew how much that meant to him, and I knew his journey and all that. So I think that was uh, that was a nice moment. Yeah. yeah. Good guys. Um, I think I'm safely going to say this one of my favourite podcasts. This one. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you guys on, um, and I'm sure, I'm sure the, li- the listeners at home are thinking why didn't he ask that and why hasn't he asked that and I'd really like to know about that Um, so we hope you guys would come back again Um, we'll do a part two um, with all the things I've missed out asking you Um, and we'll see what we'll see what happens Um, so thanks guys thanks for listening and um, yeah speak soon